funding for THINK comes from SMU Master and Doctor of Liberal Studies programs. You're listening to THINK on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. It is a story so dramatic that it sounds like the stuff of fiction or even fable. A man and a woman displaced from their home countries by a brutal civil war fall in love in a refugee settlement, have a child together, and keep their love alive in spite of other relationships and a separation of 16 years and thousands of miles. When they finally reunite, what seems like a dream come true is in fact the start of a nightmare. The man, Thomas Eric Duncan, had come from Liberia unknowingly infected with the Ebola virus, which would take his life within days of diagnosis. The woman, Louise Tro, not only lost her fiancé to a terrifying disease, she also found herself physically and socially isolated by a quarantine enacted to stop the virus before it could take hold on U.S. soil. Louise Tro shares her story in a new memoir called My Spirit Took You In, the romance that sparked an epidemic of fear. Former Dallas Morning News religion reporter Christine Wicker worked with Tro to write the book, and both joined me in studio today. Ladies, welcome to Think. Thank you. Louise, it's clear that you felt like many people in the media made a lot of mistakes in telling your story. What made you decide to tell it yourself in such great detail, things that are very personal? Yes, because and if I didn't write this book for people to know the actual truth, yeah, I was going to be left in the darkness. So I chose to write this book. God asked me to write this book so people can know the actual truth. And Christine, you and Louise are members of the same church, Wilshire Baptist. We um, are. And you had been friends, I guess, before all this happened, or did you meet because of the events that made Louise famous? Actually, uh, Wilshire's a fairly large church, and Louise sat a lot closer to the preacher than I did. I tended to sit in the back pew, (laughs) so we actually hadn't met. Uh, Louise, uh, you want people to understand that Thomas Eric Duncan, who you called Eric, was so much more than the disease that ended his life. Um, He was a full human being. First of all, tell us how you met and and how he, he wouldn't take no for an answer. Oh. Um, I'm going to go back again to remember everything. Yes, I met him in Ivory Coast one afternoon coming from the market. That's how he and I met. And he watched me going to my house, and later on he came and met and asked me if he can speak with me. And I said yes, and he approached me. And after some months before we got together, and he was a very Christian person. He never fought Liberia War either. So... I love him so much for how he very he was so respectful. Mm-hmm. I, I know you're aware of this. Um, a lot of Americans are not as aware of the Liberian civil wars as as we should be. Um, can you talk about what happened in Liberia in those years that that drove you to Ivory Coast just to stay alive? Hmm. It was terrible, but nothing terrible equal to the Ebola situation in America here. They killed people in front of me. They asked me to kill people, somebody, and everything. And each day we hear the gun sign. We never knew where to go. We just kept running. We don't know where we were going until we ended in Ivory Coast. It was, you don't have food for your kids to eat. You don't have food to eat. You don't have soap to take bath, nothing. Take leaves and just rub under your arms so you can't be that stinking. You go to the riverside and just bathe with this cold water. And it, it was terrible. War is not good. 
And so that's how we went to the Ari Coast. We have to cross to go to the Ari Coast. Louise said that sometimes people, they would hear the soldiers coming. They could hear them firing, and they would just leave their house. You would just leave. You would take nothing. You would just flee for your life. Sometimes women would give birth and then just get up and walk away because the fear was so horrible. Yes. But as she said, what happened to her with Ebola was in many ways worse. You were more isolated, weren't more, you? More, more, more. Because everybody got everyone talking around the world. They know you. They don't know you. They are talking around the world. They just giving all news out there. Especially with my own Liberians carrying on lies, lying. They, what they don't see with their eyes. People saying what they able to say. Just having all these lies together about me and my family. You know that. You can't even think about it. I don't want to even think about it because he's already gone. He had not lived for us to tell the story in front of the world. So it pains me more. It hurts. You know, one thing that really attracted me to the story is how horrible it would be to be isolated and ostracized. She feared for her own life, the life of all of her American family, every time she felt a pang, every time she felt an ache, a fever, anything, people would call and say, why are you not crying? And she would say, don't make me cry. I don't want my temperature to go up. Because if her temperature went up, that was a sign that she might have Ebola. So you've got this terrible fear. But at the same time, the whole world turned on her. She was a pariah. Yes. And who had lost everything. I was thinking about this. I was talking about it with my husband, the idea that after Eric's diagnosis, you were put into quarantine, and you have a medical background, so you understood the reason for that. But the idea of of feeling okay yourself, your 13-year-old son who was living with you and a couple of other family friends who were living with you, everybody felt okay. You knew, though, that you might get very sick, and it's like if anybody else were, were told you might have two weeks to live, what will you do with your life? It probably wouldn't be staying in a small space. No. Um, it, because in that space, the tension arises. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that, that, it, that your, your son would touch you, but no one else in that house with you would? Yes. My son would touch me. Like uh, Eric's non- uh, nephew, he said, you're going to be next. After his, his uncle died, he said, you're going to be next. So I'm so afraid of you. Stay far away from me. I don't want to come closer to you. And my nephew-in-law also will stay in the room all day. If I come out, they go in the room. If they go in the room, then I can't. Uh, and when I cook, they use the plastic to wrap the hand up uh, and take some food to eat. And I was like, why are you doing this? Because they asked me that they should cook, but they don't know how to cook. So everything, and my son make, them to feel, make me to feel that I never had this disease. My son said, we don't have Ebola. Ebola is nothing to play with. We don't have Ebola. Don't be afraid, mommy. You're not going to die. God knows what happened to Uncle Eric because he called him uncle. He said God knows we were not there. No one was there. But only God knows what happened to him. We don't have Ebola. And he made me to keep my faith in the church, the children from the church. Send me a whole lot of cards, make me to keep faith. And I will go and pray and pray until one time I was about to go pray. And God just asked me to open this Bible on Psalm 116. And it's just exactly our story. So I'm so glad that he lived, my son lived, and I lived. And we regret why every has to die. But God knows the best. He knows everything. We don't. 
did you and Eric keep your relationship going over all those years that you were apart? And he, when I left and came to America a few months later, I got mad at him because he messed up my brother's children's paper. You know, they were also to travel, and then he messed up the paper. That's how I got mad at him. <clears throat> and I left him. I told him I can make it, and he went his way. He got married, and his marriage didn't work up. And I had Timothy's father, and it didn't work up. So we tried to keep our relationship, Timothy's father and I, but we just couldn't handle it. So after he left, that's how my son, Eric Jr., said he wanted his father back in our life, in our lives. So that's how we started talking. We were talking from 2009 up to this time and until he came. And that's how our relationship grew really stronger back. And you um, had been in contact with other friends, other relatives who were still in Liberia um, around the time that that Eric was looking to get a visa and you were trying to raise money for his ticket. Um, Unrelated to that, um, you were hearing from people these terrible stories about what was happening in your home country. Mm -hmm. Yes, it happened like that. I was hearing about it. I have three boys over there, three of my kids. They live over there, and my son would tell me everybody has to stay in door, and I was advising Eric to stay in door, and he said yes. His sister promised to buy his his uh, ticket. She brought all the delay until last minute to town. She told me she couldn't buy his ticket, and I have to go loan some money to buy his ticket. But then I just told him keep your finger crossed, and we're going to work on it. And I got the ticket, unluckily. He has to help that girl. You know, one of the most poignant parts of it for me is that Louise came here when she was 38 years old. She sets up her life, and her life is one of generosity and kindness. She is known throughout the community for how kind she was. Eric also was that kind of generous man, even when they were in the Ivory Coast, and that was really his downfall. Yeah, he. Um, it's believed that he became infected, helping an, uh, his landlord's daughter, who was who was pregnant and and having um, real problems. It turns out she, her problems were related to Ebola, but at the time he seemed to think that it was just pregnancy related complications. You think he didn't tell you this, Louise, because you had lost your own daughter in a separate incident, mm-hmm. not long before in childbirth. Yes. My, yeah, so when he came, he didn't tell me that he helped this girl until all this came about before I saw it on the screen on CNN. And I called him and said, why you didn't tell me that you helped this? I just saw on the screen that you helped this pregnant girl. And he told me, you were not there. Let them talk to myself. And I was like, I'm not angry at you. I want you to be well, get well so you can come home. Because I didn't want him to raise his pressure or give him, you know, make him to feel so bad. So I was waiting, thinking that he was going to get well so we can sit at a round table to ask him. But it ain't happened that way. It's hard to think, um, Christine, about anyone, Louise or anyone, getting the details that are so relevant to your personal life by, you know, turning on the television and, and checking out news reports. Um, as a journalist yourself, I wonder if you particularly identified with that idea that, you know, this information wasn't directly available to Louise. She had to get it like everybody else. Well, there was so much misinformation, as there often is. When you have a story this big and 
where information's being controlled as much as this information was, um, I think the media just kind of goes into a frenzy sometimes. And so that was one of the challenges of writing the book. And one of the challenges for Louise is to figure out what was really happening um, with Eric. And I I think it was just horrible for her to know that he was there very, very ill, and not to be able to find out whether he was going to live or die and to love someone so much. And as you know from reading the book, she tried to see him. She was not allowed to see him and then totally cut off from him, not even able to talk to him. And, you know, just praying and hoping um, it would be so terrible um, to have that happen. And Louise, you were in contact with Eric's mother. Um, tell us about some of those conversations. You were worried, she was worried, but you were in uh, separate parts of the country. Yes, and when he got sick, she was here with me in September. She left September 8th, and he came in 19. So when he got sick, my daughter asked her to come down so she can be able to be at the hospital to ask them to treat the son. And... The delay, the, the delay all came from the daughter plus Josephus. So, and we went in quarantine. I wasn't really talking with her each day. But sometimes she would just tell me, good morning, we are praying for you, and that's it. And I said, okay, and on and on. We just got that death news when they gave it to me, and they went in. So after you have gotten it, we're going to let the whole world know know that he's gone. So they left, and they put it on the air, and that's how. I didn't talk to her until I think after four or five days because I couldn't take it. I didn't want to cry. They already gave the news, the first news out there that I have gotten a disease. They had taken me to the hospital in the Liberian community, calling around saying, oh, she had caught the virus. So I didn't want to cry for my pressure to go up, so I called her like in five days to get in contact with We're speaking with Louise Tro and also with journalist Christine Wicker. The new book that they've written is called My Spirit Took You In. We'll resume the conversation in a couple of minutes. Funding for Think comes from SMU Graduate Liberal Studies, offering evening programs for a Master of Liberal Studies and the new Doctor of Liberal Studies degree. You can design your own master's or doctoral degree at SMU this fall. More at smu.edu gls. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Louise Tro, the former fiancé of the late Thomas Eric Duncan, the first man to die of Ebola on U.S. soil. We're also speaking with journalist Christine Wicker. The two worked together on Tro's new memoir, My Spirit Took You In, the romance that sparked an epidemic of fear. If you'd like to be part of our conversation, you can call 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org or find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. Louise, one person who did come to see you just about every day when many other people were afraid was your pastor. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, my pastor, the pastor of... Um Worship Baptist Church, I haven't seen any godly person equal to him like that because everyone was so afraid in this world. But he was brave to come and see us each day until I got concerned. And I said, why you come every day? You have your family. 
Why can't you stay home with your family? What does your wife say to you if you leave and go back home? He said, no, she's comfortable with that. Anything, I don't want to miss dinner with her. If I miss dinner, I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> but it's okay that I come every day. That's what God chose me to do, and that's the work I'm here to do. So I tell God thank you for him because had it not been for his inspiration in the church, I don't think I was going to live because every every second my friend would check on me, she thought I was going to commit suicide. And she said, you you are very strong. Why are you staying alive? I said, why why should I take my life away? I'm not going to do that. Yes. There's a story in the book, um, Christine, about George Mason, Pastor George Mason, um, remembering back to um, the early 80s when there was a family in the church that was affected by HIV, and um, he wanted to change the way the church embraced people who were dealing with a crisis that is frightening to people who don't um, who don't quite know the course a particular disease might take. Well, those of you who remember the HIV crisis in the 80s, as I do, I worked for the morning news then, um, know that this is probably the Ebola scare and the HIV crisis had a lot in common. People were terrified. And Wilshire... Um, didn't but did not behave as well as they would have liked to. And so um, this is very much on George Mason's mind. And um, he was determined that um, the church would behave in the way that Christians should behave, that he would. And then I have to say, the church backed him up. Um, when he came um, one Sunday and, and talked about how um, he had been visiting Louise. I asked later, I said, well, were people afraid to shake his hand? And uh, someone said to me, they were not only um, willing to shake his hand, they were willing to cut, uh, hug him. They were hugging him. Some of them were kissing him. <laughs> they were so proud of him and so happy that he had taken this role so that people could be the best that they can be the best, the, the people that they want to be. So Wilshire saw their chance and they just embraced it and saw it as as a terrible thing that had happened, but they were so happy that Louise was, was in their congregation. Louise, the people that are sort of known throughout the community who really stayed by your side, and I know there are others that are less well known, but um, there was Pastor George Mason, Mason there was County Judge Clay Jenkins, and there was Dallas Mayor Mike Rawlings. A story that I had not heard reported before I read your book is that Mayor Rawlings, when you were looking for a place where you and the people who had to be quarantined with you, including your your, your teenage son, you needed a place to stay because you couldn't stay in your old apartment. The mayor said, my son has a rental home. You can stay there. Mm-hmm. I heard that, but um at that time, I was so worried. I was not even thinking that I was even on earth. So everything that was going on, I didn't know until and Josh Jenkins came to meet me before I got to know that he was trying to get me out of there. He was so mad that while I was staying in there, after they had diagnosed him with Ebola, why would the other people still be in there? And he, he promised me. So everything later on before I got to know how hard it felt, for us to get a place to go and quarantine. And the bishop, the Catholic bishop, offered us the place we were. So, the, Judge Jenkins was, when you say he was mad, he was angry that you hadn't been moved to a place that was not potentially contaminated. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then when you pulled up to to the place that I guess it was Catholic Charities or mm-hmm. the Catholic Diocese found for you, um, at first you had the wrong address, and I guess you <laughs> you called out Judge Jenkins because it looked like a terrible place, but it was he, the wrong place. Yes, he took us, and he was like, "I said I'm, I'm going to go back home. I'm not going in that." trashy old house. It's like an old building. And I said, why would they treat us like this? This time, mm-mm. I'm not going to go in there. And my nephew, Eric's nephew, my nephew-in-law said, I don't think so. I said, sit in the car, be calm. I don't think he's going to take us there. He said he's going to treat us like one of, one of his own. So I don't think that's the place. And when he came by, he said, Luis, this is not a place for a human being. I made a mistake. And he said, let's go. And he took us to the Catholic uh, campus. Uh, You know, people might first hear that story and say, well, you know, you should be happy to be anywhere. But when I hear that strength and that resistance, I think this is what kept this woman alive in a civil war and through raising children and having, you know, family all over the world. You have to have that, um, that kind of backbone. Louise was 38 years old when she came here with nothing. It's amazing. And uh, in the book, we talk about how hard it was for her um, and how hard she worked. And, you know, for 16 years, she'd accumulated the possessions that were destroyed in that apartment. And I mean, one by one, part of what she had in that apartment were things that she had gathered to send to Africa, Um, just one thing after another, mm-hmm. and it was just all gone. And, and moreover, is my daughter's memory. I had her T-shirts. I had her chain, her, her gold chain, the set of gold chain. My son sent that from Africa to me to keep as a memory, and that's what hurt me the most. Yes. A lot of people in Liberia um, might look at your life and think, Louise, that you are now you're an American, so you're mm-hmm. very wealthy um, by American standards. Your mm-hmm. life is very you have a very modest life. You worked as a was it a medical um, assistant, like in, in people's mm-hmm. homes, caring for elderly yeah, people I, I, in the nursing home. I work all my life in a nursing home, mm-hmm. caring for people. Yeah. People think that way. That's why when they ask us at the workplace, why when we say the work is hard, why can't you go home? I say, how will we go home? Once you enter America, people think that you are rich. And if I don't do anything, no progress in Liberia, I can't go home to go live with family members. So that's why I'm still here and raising my kids before I can maybe go back home later on when I get old. You know, there's so much that I learned about the immigrant situation that I didn't know, and I would have thought I knew a lot because I've been a reporter a long time. But when you get the chance to come to the United States and you're from Liberia, you go. And for Louise, it meant that she had to leave her children. But she wouldn't have been able to stay there and watch her children go hungry. So then once you get here, everyone in Liberia thinks you're the lucky one because you are the lucky one. But then they are constantly, I've just been amazed at how many people want help from Louise. Mm -hmm. I I sometimes say to her, Louise, all of Africa is calling you, (laughs) saying, send us money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's true because Mm -hmm. they are people who are desperate, and she sends them whatever she can because she knows what it is to be hungry and Mm -hmm. hopeless. Louise, when Eric first started feeling sick when he was here. You only had a day or two before he started saying, I'm, I'm not feeling quite right, um, before he got very sick. 
it never occurred to you, you say, that, that he could have Ebola because often when people have come such a long way on the plane, they get off and they're just not, not feeling, feeling themselves. Yes, they are not feeling themselves. I have some couples of friends came from Africa and they have to be hospitalized because of the climate change and everything, the food, the drinks and everything. So I was thinking it's his first time coming and it's just a climate change. So I wasn't even thinking about Ebola because all the time he promised he was home, he was home, and he didn't even tell me that he helped that girl and not feeling, and feeling, you know, after catching the cold, he didn't tell, explain anything to me. So it never ran out in my head that he was catching Ebola. So um, anyways. You know, and the other thing was that they were reading younger um her oldest daughter, the one who did call nine one one and tell them to protect themselves, every night she was reading of these horrible stories from Liberia about it. So then, when you looked at Eric, he didn't really have those symptoms. He had a fever when they took him and some pain when they took him to Presbyterian that first time, but he wasn't vomiting. He didn't have diarrhea. He didn't have those really horrible symptoms. And so what, what sometimes people would say, well, how could they not have known? Well, in fact, doctors didn't know. No. So how yes. could they have known? There just weren't yeah. that many yeah. symptoms early on. And then they started to come. And even we don't have the experience. Like a guy wrote to me saying, how is your boyfriend, your lying, dying boyfriend, how does he not know that he had Ebola? Ebola been up since nine, in 1976. I said, we don't know about Ebola. We, my first time hearing about Ebola, some friends and I were in my apartment, and when we watched the news, we said, but how do they come up with these names? How Americans come up with these diseases' name? This is the first time. What they call Ebola again? Where did it come from? So we don't have, I never heard about Ebola before in my life, in my whole life, in my entire life, until this thing happened to the Liberians and when Eric came here and got sick. Louise, the son that you and Eric had together was off at college. And, and ironically, one of, the, in the book. Yes, um, <laughs> one of the reasons um, that, that, he, that Eric came was to, to reunite with his son. Yes. Um, you had another younger son at home. Um, who was 13, and, and I wonder about how you tried to help him manage his fear and the isolation and, and the way he was treated at school and, and all of that. Then well, Eric's son or the 13 years old? Well, you can talk about both of them, but I'm curious yeah. about the 13-year-old who was yeah. home with you. Mm-hmm. He was my encouragement. He was encouraging me. He's a brave young black boy, and I think in the future I wish to live longer to know who he's going to be in the future because... He's like, nobody's going to call me Ebola. Nobody's going to talk about Ebola to me because I don't have it. And he had that, he had that strong fit. And he didn't even want to stay in indoor. He told me I want to go to school. He defied me and went to school. They did it to us to stay home for 21 days. And they have to call me to come and pick him up real fast. And they left him with the nurse at the school. And they explained to him before he got it and we came home. But... All along, my son was just, and he got me living too because every time he would come and rub on me, eat with me, and lie down in the room with me, even on the same mattress with me, in, in the same bed. He said, you don't have it. So he never worried. If, if I asked him to take his temperature, he was like, I'm sick of taking temperature. I'm not sick. 
And I said, we have to just listen to them. We have to be obedient so we can get out of here, okay? And he said, okay, when I'm crying, I don't want to see him crying. He doesn't want to see me crying. And he checks on me every time we go in the room. He will come and creep in the room to know that I'm okay. So, Christine, tell us a little bit about what it was like in church for those weeks that only Pastor Mason um, from the church was was visiting with Louise, but I guess providing updates to the rest of the congregation. Um, he would send out updates um, over the internet um, sometimes and um, speak about Louise um, on Sundays. But mainly what happened is the church was just in the middle of a media storm. And so every there were reporters everywhere, cameras everywhere. <laughs> and you will, being in the media, be happy to hear that um, they behaved really well. They were humane people. Um, they were respectful of uh, people in the church. I, there were times when they didn't respond so well when they were at Louise's apartment in the beginning. Uh, people were uh, trying to storm her apartment, pretending to be pizza delivery people to get in. One one reporter, I think it was a woman reporter, mm-hmm. went into somebody's apartment and refused to leave. And it was so bad that the mayor was chiding them, saying, hey, stop this. But as you and I know, when there's a big story, they are under huge pressure. Once they got to Wilshire, um, they were pretty pretty respectful. And so that was it. Was Here was this church completely unprepared for it, um, just in the middle of worldwide attention. Louise, you weren't able to attend Eric's funeral? No. And then we have his ashes and keep it in the church at Wilshire Baptist Church, at my church. So I'm keeping his ashes. His son says, Maybe in the future he's going to bury his father, give him a nice burial. How, it's always, there's no easy way to grieve someone that you have cared about. Um, But this is particularly complicated. I wonder, it sounds like you, your faith is very important to you. On days when you wake up and you just feel very sad, how do you, how do you keep going? Well, Jesus gave way to tears. I gave way to tears many days ago in my bathroom and just cry, cry, and then I say, well, God, let your will be done, and just praise him, just keep praising God for everything. Because we see people in the Bible, in the Bible those people like Moses, like Noah, like Job, then they went through trials and temptations. So any godly person, you have to go through that. With your faith being so strong, the devil is going to tempt you, and I know it's all trial and temptations from the devil. So I keep my faith in God. There are people who have said Eric was a sort of symbolic sacrifice in that what happened to him caused a lot of Americans to pay attention to what was happening in West Africa. And I wonder how you feel about that. Yes, I feel very good about that. And I even told my fellow Africans, had it not been for this man that you're accusing as a liar, and we all know what went on during our civil war. People lied to come to be safe, but he did not lie. His son sent for him. So he came as like Jesus, how Jesus died on the cross for us, because Eric and death brought a whole lot of attention around the world to Ebola. Everybody is trying to know about Ebola, study about Ebola, and get a very 
good medication for Ebola before it spreads all over the world. So he came, he died as a sacrifice to save the Africans. So now everybody paying attention over there. I wrote it in my book, and I even put, I, I pay a tribute to him, yes, on this side. We're speaking this hour with Louise Tro, the fiancé of the late Thomas Eric Duncan, the first man to die of Ebola on U.S. soil. We're also speaking with her co-author, uh, journalist Christine Wicker. Their new book is My Spirit Took You In. We'll come back to the conversation in two minutes. Funding for Think comes from SMU Graduate Liberal Studies, offering evening programs for a Master of Liberal Studies and the new Doctor of Liberal Studies degree. You can design your own master's or doctoral degree at SMU this fall. More at smu.edu slash gls. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Louise Tro, fiancé of the late Thomas Eric Duncan, the first man to die of Ebola on U.S. soil, and with journalist Christine Wicker. Together, they wrote the book My Spirit Took You In, the romance that sparked an epidemic of fear. It's a memoir told from Louise's perspective. If you would like to join our conversation, you can call 1-800-933-5372, or you can email think at kera.org. Christine, as we've discussed, this is an extremely complicated story. There is um, a lot of complicated emotion involved and fear. You were able to to work with Louise. You both worked very quickly to produce the book. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your process in making sure that you understood every detail and how you and Louise worked together to tell the story in a way that would be both compelling and, and also honor the, the truth of what happened. Well, the book had to be produced. We we had about six weeks to deliver 60,000 words. So I've written a number of books, but none that fast. So I didn't really know that I could do it. Um, but Louise gave her time for it. And some people have said to me, how did you manage to get her voice? Well, Louise and I talked so much that even when I was away from her, I could hear her voice in my head. (laughs) She was the person I spoke the most to. And then I would go home and just write as fast as I could. I would just write what she had told me. And then some of these memories, you know, the memories, for instance, from the Liberian War were so painful to Louise that she just didn't want to go there. Who would? And so some of them, it didn't come... Um, in a chronological fashion. It didn't come exactly the way that I might have wanted it to. So I would go back and we would talk about it again and there would be more details. And, you know, truly, it was just a terrific story. It it had it all. You know, you have a war and you have uh, the hope of a woman who has children. She has to leave those children. You have love. You have death. You have fear. Um, and then you have a larger community story. So it's, in a way, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about how you don't see behind the headlines. Some journalists said to me, do you think there will be enough there to write a book? Because when you look at it from the headlines, you think, well, you know, he comes here. It's a pretty simple story, right? But then when you start to talk to Louise and her life opens up, you realize, oh, my goodness, there's so much more here. So, Louise, you couldn't go back to the apartment that you had been living in when 
Eric arrived, um, and there was the question as to where you would go. Um, some members of the church arranged to buy, I guess, a townhouse that you could eventually pay them rent to live in at, a, at an affordable rate. Um, and it needed to have space because you are someone who often has family members staying and friends staying and people will pop over for a meal. Can you talk a little bit about what your life, the kind of life that you built for yourself in Vickery Meadows and and um, how your home really reflected that? Right now and in Vickery Meadows, I'm so happy that I have my Christians, brothers and sisters who found that place for me. And my children and I, we are comfortable there. The neighborhood where I have some neighbors over there, they are very friendly people. And they know my story. And the guy from the the, 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 the home owner association, he came and met me and he said I did vote for me to get that place. So I'm so comfortable over there and my kids are very happy that we have this place and I don't have to worry about big old rent every month anymore. So I'm so glad to God. And my kids are glad they are happy. My grandkids are so happy to be in the home there with me most of the time. They spend time, spending the time with me. And my granddaughter, Grace, she gave me a surprise each day to live longer. And we are just happy over there. I'm so happy for the church and all the other people that helped me in the community in the city of Dallas and around the world because I got some help from everywhere. I got help from other states. Even from room, a lady even called me and sent me a card. So I'm so glad that God is with me, that we are accepted over there, and I don't have to worry too much about where to put my head anymore. Um, you know, uh, they couldn't find a place for her, even after the quarantine. So many people turned her down. Landlords were afraid that their property would be ruined, that they would lose their investment. And so what was wonderful about this place is that I remember when um, George Mason told me that they were going to have to get approval from the Homeowners Association. I said, well, forget it, because those Homeowners Associations, all they think about is themselves, and there's no way those people are going to let Louise in, because this had gone on for a month, time after time getting turned down. But these Vickery Meadows people who were going to live right there next to her said, we want to make sure this happens. We want to be there for Louise. So, you know, well, well, you had the horrible, the worst Mm -hmm. came out in people. Sometimes the best came out in people, too. Yes. Louise, can you describe for me what it felt like when you got the confirmation, the telephone call of confirmation that Eric actually had Ebola. You were thinking it could be malaria, it could be some other kind of infection. Um, a lot of other things could have been wrong based on his symptoms. Um, what was that like when you realized this is the thing you feared the most? Hmm. Well, I was on the laundry mat when she called me, Dr. Chance called me, but down deep in my heart, I thought he was, he suffered from typhoid fever before, and I was hoping it was typhoid or malaria. But then I have other librarian people, they already knew that no matter what, they were going to diagnose Eric with Ebola. So 
they were expecting something like that, but I didn't, I didn't know until when it happened, they started telling us, they said, well, and you know, he's came from the country with virus, nothing else you should expect but Ebola. They're going to come down with Ebola. And I said, well, God has everything. So just exactly that. But And when I heard it, I was already dead. I couldn't even think. I was not thinking, and people calling me, and everywhere they were calling me. And I won't answer the phone. I won't answer the phone until the Liberian Association president was like, please pick up this phone call. And he told me, we are with you. We are with you. And I was like, let God do anything he wants to do with my life. So I wasn't even thinking of Ebola, but... Others knew that it was going to be, they're going to come down with Ebola. But he's in a better place. Do you wish he hadn't come back? I wish he didn't have to come. Mm-hmm. It was my hope. I was like, if we knew tomorrow, no one knows tomorrow, but if we knew tomorrow that this is what going to happen, he wasn't going to come here. He was not going to come here. I feel bad. I feel very bad. I feel hurt. It's painful to lose your love. One of very strong and young man, good-looking person like that. So I regret. I know he regretted why he came here. And he told them, I heard that. He told them that he loved his country. If he had known, he was not going to come. Yes. Christine, um, you and Louise have become friends, and yes. um, I, I, it's hard to talk to your friends. Sometimes it's harder to talk to your friends than it is to talk to the journalistic subject that you'll only interact with a couple of times. And I wonder if there was a point where you crossed over and realized, this is a woman that I'm not only helping to report her story, but I care deeply about, and if the conversations got easier or more difficult when that happened. There certainly came a time when I became more, much more protective of Louise mm-hmm. and um, began to rail against things in a very unjournalistic way, I think I would say to her, particularly over money. You know, everybody thinks that Louise has gotten a lot of money. Louise has not gotten a lot of money. And so I would be saying to Louise, don't be giving those people your money. <laughs> You can't afford to do this. Uh, but, of course, uh, she would acquaint me with the facts of her life. When your son calls and says your grandchild needs medicine in Africa, you send the money. So um, that's been the most wonderful thing is that Louise's family has just really taken me in and shown me another thing, an, an, another uh, side of life that I really didn't know. One of the things for Africans that that I found out, it it really touched me so many times. I was just touched by things that I didn't understand. Uh, you know, you see immigrants all the time. There are immigrants all around us, but we have no idea how much they suffer. We have no idea. We don't think that they had to leave their children and uh, come here and um, one of the things that really struck me and that made me so very sad was when I realized that for Africans, 
and many people in the developing world, when they come here, this is such an isolating place. They are so lucky to get here. But Louise grew up in a in a town where people kept their doors open. You could walk. There's there's a story in there about um, when Louise came here and um, she was pregnant and she was thinking about having a baby. And she said something that just pierced me. She said, who would help me with this child? You can't even get somebody in this country to give you a ride. <laughs> and I knew, of course, that was true. And for Africans, for people who don't grow up in this kind of culture, I mean, we live in these little separate boxes. Nobody, There's nobody on the street. And one time I said to Louise, what do you miss about Africa? And she said, well, one thing I miss is being able just to sit outside and not think someone's going to come by and hurt you. Louise, are you, um, has this, have these events changed the way you feel about now being an American and, and, and making a life in this country? Mm, not too much because I have Americans and baby and American grandkids. So sometimes people make mistakes. Sometimes people hide people before they get to know that they have done wrong. Like Eric's death, they diagnosed him with Ebola, and Ebola is something that takes away your rights. You don't have no second opinion. So I wanted, I always told them, not just the hospital, but the whole law making, the decision makers of this country, why did they not treat him when they diagnosed him with Ebola? But I have my, I have my son, and Eric has two boys here, one in North Carolina and one is in Texas. And we have all these American kids, and these children are going to grow up and see this book and read and know what went on with us. And I will always advise them to be good kids, to know how to deal with the American system. So I have to accept that my son is an American, and I'm hoping, and I know Eric's two children are going to have their kids here also with all these grandkids that I have. I have over 10 of them right now, so... Life goes on. I just pray to God to take my heart away each day. Let my soul rest. Let my soul just sit in a good place, just in a resting place for me to just serve God. It has happened. I don't care how I talk. He's not going to come back until in God's new order. So I just give God the praise. Mm. You know, one thing that some people have asked me uh, as I've done uh, Louise and I have done stories for publicity as they've said, Louise, weren't you angry with God? Didn't you think about giving up on God? Giving up on God? And whenever they ask me that, you're right. I know Louise so much better now. I don't even really know how to respond to that because that would be the furthest thing from Louise's mind. They're coming from a place that Louise would never come from. Um, I think that's right, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, for Louise, it's when you're in trouble, when bad things happen, of course you wouldn't give up on God. You draw closer to God. He's your help. She once said to me, we are poor people. Only God cares about what happens to us. Hmm. 
Christine Wicker is former religion reporter for the Dallas Morning News. Louise Tro was the fiance of Thomas Eric Duncan, the first man to die of Ebola on U.S. soil. They worked together on Tro's memoir. It's called My Spirit Took You In, the romance that sparked an epidemic of fear. It's been wonderful to have both of you here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is associate producer. Jeff Whittington is executive producer. I'm on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. The show's email address is think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.